Hi, I'm Diora, and this is Broccoli Book Club. Leading on from our previous conversation about Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, I felt the need to delve deeper into the topic of climate change and figure out what we can actually do in order to make a positive impact. I thought of a few people I could have a conversation with and Greg Cochran, the former editor of the magazine Loud and Quiet, seemed like a perfect choice. Greg's new project is a podcast called Sounds Like a Plan, which looks at people in the music industry fighting climate change. He uses this platform to educate us on how we could slow down global warming and be kinder to our planet. I don't immediately link the music industry to climate change, so I thought it was really innovative of Greg to pair these two things together and show us that everything has a connection to this issue. So I wanted to start the conversation by asking Greg about his work. My background is mostly in writing and broadcasting about music, but increasingly in the past sort of five or six years, it's also been in the climate crisis, in climate action and sustainability. And I suppose the area that I work in most is the overlap between climate and the ecological emergency and popular culture. So how do those two things weave together? How do they feed into each other? How can they talk to each other and create action? So that's a lot of what I do. Maybe you could give us some examples of how you do look at the way climate change intersects with popular culture moments. Yeah, so I suppose in the music sphere, which is what I sort of spend most of my time with, is just the way that artists can be advocates, they can be spokespeople for communicating the urgency of the climate crisis. High-profile examples of that would be Billie Eilish or Coldplay. But then right through to the fact that We know that to be able to combat the climate issue, we all need to be taking sort of tangible action. So throughout the music industry, there's lots and lots of action happening on a day-to-day level in kind of what we'd sort of consider small details, you know, the record labels or the music managers or anybody that's working in the music space, like what they are doing in their day-to-day to do their bit, you know, beyond speaking on the climate issue. And so I think music's so powerful in terms of a global platform to be able to reach people. I'm just fascinated that those two things feel very much like entwined now. I don't think sort of 10 years ago you'd have heard that many artists talking in the terms that they do now. You know, it feels like people are a lot more engaged and educated on this front and just as an aside what did you think of lord's solar power (laughs) (laughs) oddly enough just before we started talking she's done like a live recording for american tv and i was watching it i'm really interested by lord and i really hope that at some point i get to speak to her about her interest in climate and ecology because i know that a few years ago she visited antarctica as part of a kind of organised mission to look at what was happening there in terms of the the degradation caused by the by what's happening with the climate. And I think that was a real sort of life-changing moment and maybe kind of flicked a switch for her. Though she doesn't necessarily talk about herself in terms of being a climate activist, she kind of is because I think that, like, from what I can kind of detail so far, like hearing the particularly the new music that she's recently released, it's a really strong kind of prevalent theme that's running through the music that she's making. Even if she doesn't feel entirely kind of knowledgeable about the subject that's the thing I I always encourage anybody to speak on climate even if it's one of those things that you you, perhaps people get a bit scared of because they think I don't know all of the ins and outs I don't understand all the terms I'm not 100% up to speed with this it doesn't matter just speak on what you know so far that's totally fine and for you was there a key moment in your life that led you to start engaging in activism around climate change yeah there was and a lot of people that I speak to often comes from 
maybe they've read a book or been affected by like a really shocking news story. But mine actually came through music, which is why I've kind of carried on working in this space. And that was an artist called Anoni. And she released a song called Four Degrees in late 2015. And it's a sort of anthem for our doomed planet. I heard the song and I was just like, wow, this is incredibly powerful. And I was really fortunate that a few months later, so at the beginning of 2016, I got to interview her. And it was just this sort of life-changing encounter. Um, Probably only spent about a couple of hours with her, but I came away with such a sort of heightened set of emotions. I felt really scared about what we talked about, really fired up, quite sort of ashamed in myself that I didn't know more about the subject and maybe hadn't been doing more. And so from that point, I went out and I I borrowed and I bought books and I started reading articles and started teaching myself about the climate crisis and like the severity of what's going on. And I was also just a bit shocked about how the fact that given the scale of the challenge and just how serious things are, that it wasn't everywhere that I didn't know about it. In your opinion, why do you think that is? Like, it feels like all these things are happening in the world. We're seeing these, you know, floods in Western Europe, seeing them in London. Mm. And all these things are happening in real time. Why is it, do you think, that's not really reflected in sort of the mainstream media or on social media and Mm. on our televisions? So many reasons. I think historically, maybe sort of climate change has been a difficult thing to kind of get your head around because it is enormous. It goes from your local shop being flooded, like you just said, through to a wildfire ravaging an entire hundreds of acres of a forest or something you do what I mean like Mm. these these things range in enormous and then and then when you talk about it it's hard not to talk about climate change in very like grand terms which somehow feel a little bit ungraspable like it really is the sort of story of our age like this is the biggest challenge that humanity has ever faced but as soon as you say that it sounds like something out of like a a Marvel film or something and it it feels a bit just sort of otherworldly and and almost not Mm. real but we know the effects and all the things that are symptoms of climate change are really really tangible their shortages and their famine and their their extreme weather like displacing people and ruining people's lives and their homes and all these things and I think it's just taken a really really long time for the media to start talking about it as a collective problem I think they've covered them individually like the floods that happened early in 2020 in the UK I remember hearing somebody on the radio the presenter had said to them they owned a pub somewhere in the UK that had been flooded and they said to him what do you think is going on do you think climate change is responsible for this and they said I I don't know if it's climate change I just think that we're having a lot of rain at the moment and it really struck me that obviously like climate education hasn't been there at all really and still I don't think necessarily is that strongly and I think certainly the generation that's younger than me have gone out and pretty much like taught themselves about this and so I don't think it's come to fruition to be reflected by mainstream media Mm. I think it's getting better there's a pledge called covering climate which is a US-based pledge that um quite a few sort of publications and outlets have now signed up to which is effectively a commitment to say like we need to reflect the seriousness and the scale of this so you are seeing more of it but also it's a lot of bad news isn't it and we've had enough of that in what feels like um more local fashion with COVID and everything else the last few years, that maybe people just feel like it's a really impenetrable big thing and they feel helpless and they can't necessarily do anything about it. Yeah, you're right. I do think one of the issues is the fact that it is quite inaccessible. Mm. Um, And because it's inaccessible, I guess people maybe feel like it's not a news story for them or it doesn't concern them when, of course, it does because it's Mm. literally affecting every single one of us. But I do wonder if more could be done in terms of like 
climate change on our curriculums, on the school curriculums mm. and education. I, I remember just a few weeks ago, I saw that BBC Bite Size had mm. like a... Was this the sort of pros of, um, pros of climate change? The pros change, of yeah. climate change. And honestly, it was just shocking. I couldn't believe that, mm. you know, kids were being taught that there are pros and cons of climate change. And, you know, the mm. pros being that, oh, now that the ice melts, that we're going to have more trade routes and, mm. you know, we're going to be able to grow other kind of vegetation you know, mm. but obviously that means what's going to happen to the local vegetation. So it's just, it seems really bizarre that there isn't kind of this urgent action that's starting at very young ages. Because I mm. do just think like, as you said, I think many of us, when we get older, we have that light bulb moment and then we're like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> why haven't we been taught about this? Or why is no one talking about this? But it's also interesting because in my previous job, I used to like write a few articles on the environment mm -hmm. and I just remember that no one clicked on them no mm. one read them but mm. they would be really highly engaged so like you know they'd have loads of comments and shares but no one actually wanted to read it mm. and I do just think it's one of those things where it's like are we burying our heads in the sand because it just seems so big this issue that on an individual level it feels like you know can we really do anything definitely I think there's been historically the language used around it has been a bit impenetrable you know you have to sort of decode some of the scientific language i'm not saying that the issue is simple it really isn't but i think it can be simplified i don't think this is an insurmountable thing i think anybody can understand what's going on with the planet at the moment and planetary warming for so long it was like the climate debate you know basically scientists were saying this decades and decades ago you know they were meeting with politicians in the 1980s onwards to say look we got to do something about this seriously now and quickly but it was set up as a debate for like decades sort of like, is it happening? Isn't it happening? If it is happening, then like this is the counterpoint argument and everything else. We basically lost ground in that time. It's a scientific reality. And if we've been shown anything by the last 18 months of COVID, it's like, you know, we keep hearing it, don't we? Like, we're going to follow the science. We're going to follow the science. Trust the science. Like, we'll go where that tells us to go. Climate action was identified by science. And yet we've had our fingers in our ears in some respects. Yeah, and definitely, you know, in the age of fake news and everything mm. becoming a culture war, no one wants to listen to experts anymore, which is kind of horrifying because it's like, who do we depend on, you know, mm. when everything goes to shit? Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. and we've seen that, especially with the pandemic as well. You know, there's been so many different narratives of what's going on and it is confusing. But, you know, there are literal experts who dedicate their entire lives to studying these big issues. Yeah. So we've just read This Changes Everything and mm -hmm. I'm aware that you've read it too. So yes. I was just wondering, what were your first thoughts on the book? I read parts of it a few years ago, but like returned to it ahead of this podcast. And I mean, the first thought is that there's a lot to take in, right? I mean, it's, it's a, it takes a lot of brain power, I think. Um, but I can see why it's considered a bit of a climate handbook or a textbook for the climate crisis as if sort of um, if you start... In the past, I heard people say, you know, if you want to get interested in this area, like they almost hand it to you on your first day of like climate school or something. But it's incredibly well researched, obviously really thorough, very enlight enlightening, but um, equally petrifying, very scary. I think on like an informational level, I understand why some people might find it a bit impenetrable. Like I already said, it is long, it's quite chewy. Um, it sort of takes a lot to get through. But Other thoughts were that this was written sort of seven years ago and it basically says we need to take urgent action now or we risk losing it all. And frankly, obviously, 
not enough has happened in the time that's passed. Yeah. And, and I'm generally a climate optimist, but this book is a, is a real bring you back to earth moment, a, a real grounding as a sort of a, a reminder that to avoid catastrophe, everything has to change. Like I was trying to think of my, like a few years ago, obviously when I was starting out trying to learn more about climate and still very much like consider myself being on that path. Reading this book is a little bit like learning a secret or a language or a code or something, sort of what I felt personally. You, you sort of, um, once you've learned it, you can't sort of unlearn it, if that makes sense. So it is a real, it's heavy. I don't know, I could see why some people might want to read this, sort of quietly shut the door to their room and draw the curtains and just put their head in their hands and just think, I, I don't know if we're going to make it through this. But equally, it's a real kind of firework moment for a lot of people that will just give them so much energy to get out there and just t and take action. And yeah, I've chosen to be on that side of the uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> of the divide. If you don't laugh, you'll cry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, totally. Yeah, yeah it's interesting because when you said it was written seven years ago, as I was reading it, the first time I read it was this year. Mm. I was just like, it has been a long time since this book has been published. Mm. And, you know, she does say like, we only have, you know, X amount of years. And it did just oh, make me feel really a lot of dread inside. I think that's mm. the thing that's quite scary. That time limit that's put on us to sort something, to do something, to deal with climate change. I remember, you know, a few years ago, everyone was talking about the 12 years that mm. we have only 12 years to do anything. Mm. And in my head, I was like, that's actually still an okay amount of time. Mm. But I think what people don't understand, and I think maybe what's sometimes unhelpful, is that when we say, oh, we only have 10 years, or we only have this amount of time, maybe people think we have 10 years to not do anything and mm. then do something after 10 years. Mm. When actually what, what is meant by that is, no, we have to do everything right now. Mm. Uh, and we only, you know, have 12 years until it's like irreversible. Mm. Coming back to the point you made about language, I do wonder how talking about it really affects the way people do tackle climate change. And I do wonder whether short-term goals are what's needed because we hear a lot about the race to zero, for example, and 2030. And then we hear of an enormous kind of industrial nations, China, for example, saying that they're going to have tackled their carbon footprint by 2060. And you're right, those just feel like dates that are far off in the future don't they and really like we need to be getting to chapters and goal markers in the next year in the next 18 months you know and so yeah I, I wonder if there's a switch of the way we communicate that that could be more effective to be honest because you're right it, it can slip into this mode where the climate issue is just something that just keeps being like kicked into the future and it's just another Definitely. set of dates and then one day we'll just go I mean we're already seeing it now you know we, we hear a lot of talk of tipping points where things flip and there's kind of a almost irreversible change in certain kind of ecosystems and things like that. So there was news about how the Amazon rainforest is now emitting more carbon than it's absorbing. And that's really frightening. You know, the fact that it's being kind of um, like the combination of wildfires and being kind of deforested to, um, to make room for beef production and soy and things like that. But like the Amazon rainforest has almost been sort of held up as this example for decades of just like, this is the type of thing that we need to preserve if we're going to get through this crisis, right? And it almost feels like you've really lost one of your key team members by hearing that news. It's really hard not to be incredibly depressed by that. More of those things are going to happen in months and short years. We can't wait till 2030 to then no. take a kick, kick up the backside to make bigger changes. It, it will be done by then. Yeah, it does just feel like when they say, oh, 2030... 
to me, mm. it sounds like they're saying, we'll just revisit this issue in 2030 rather than being mm. like, mm. we're going to make all these changes so that by 2030, you know, hopefully we're not going to be on the way to four degrees like we currently are. Mm. I want to know what shocked you the most while reading this changes everything? I mean, it's pretty much like a shocker chapter, isn't there? Like, it's kind of every every time Naomi Klein moves to a different topic, it feels quite shocking. You sort of find yourself, like, shaking your fist with the injustice of it all. But the big one is the thing we've literally just been talking about, which is the pure lack of time around the issue and just whether the challenge of us organising ourselves on a scale that's needed in the time that's ticking away. And obviously, we're in the book, she outlines the, the broad history of the climate challenge, shows decades and decades of kind of failure around this issue and so poses the question of like is it still remotely possible in the time that we have left and the answer is that like yeah there's very very slim but like we, we've wasted a lot of time on a smaller scale of one of the examples that really hit home with me she was retelling the story of the tiny south pacific island of Nauru, which has been written and talked about a lot in kind of climate circles over the years and that is basically just the story of a nation that was exploited for its natural resources, treated kind of like a play toy, you know, in the way that it's been sort of bounced around over the years. And just the complete lack of respect for its indigenous peoples. And so, yeah, I think I think Naomi Klein is writing about that to illustrate the point about climate injustice as well, which is a huge part of this. Millions of people are suffering the consequences of a crisis that they didn't create. And so there's a real deep sense of unfairness that is quite shocking I think and I suppose the final thing was I suppose I was re-shocked to think again about how to solve the climate crisis you need to have solid and reliable democracy because things are going to need to change not only on a national level but an international level and for that to work it can only be done by the people who we put in charge and while they're campaigns are funded by businesses with an interest in keeping fossil fuels going it's hard to see how it's going to happen and they're going to have to work like bilaterally so every country around the world is going to have to be bought into this and so obviously sure you had the un paris climate agreement after this book came out which gave a bit of hope that that's possible but it wasn't legally binding and, and i think that we've all got to be on the same side of this on a scale of collaboration and shared interests that we've never seen before in human history completely reinvent the way we live tear up our economic system financial systems and i suppose it just poses that question of are we going to do that are we going to have the togetherness to be able to do that i think it takes like a special kind of resilient hope and determination to turn around and still say yes i think for me <laughs> what i found the most shocking was after reading this book, I can't believe that I didn't see the connection. You know, the fight against climate change is inherently anti-capitalist. You know, you always hear a lot mm. about kind of carbon credits and all of these mm -hmm. essentially financial incentives to save the mm. planet and actually how little they do. But, you know, a lot of people mm. talk about like sustainable capitalism or ethical capitalism and... I don't know. It just sounds like from everything she described in the book, I don't know if we have time to even figure out whether, you know, unregulated capitalism can ever be ethical. Ideologically, mm. I did not see the link between the two issues. And it was really good, mm. you know, realizing, wow, all of these fights for social progress, it feels like they actually all intersect. And in a way that mm. makes it easier, you know, it's like we're not all fighting these separate fights. Like, you know, the feminists or the anti-racists or the anti-capitalists mm -hmm. or like all of this is actually part of the same issue and if we can all join together mm -hmm. and we can all be in coalitions then it feels like 
definitely something can be done. So I think I really appreciated the fact that she just unified that for me in the book. Mm. It feels like a bit of a definitive text on that front of, like you say, joining the dots. Climate justice is similar to racial justice, is similar to economic justice, is, you know, all these things. And they are like, do you want to create a different way of living that feels more equitable? And it's all part of that. And you're right, like you suddenly have, it's like a constellation in the sky, isn't it? You're like, hang on, these are not issues that are disparate and they're all over the place. Like you can very much connect the dots between those. I've seen that, I haven't been on a few like climate marches. Yes, of course, a lot of people are there kind of protesting the lack of action around climate issues. But equally, it feels like being in a movement of people who want to fight injustice on a broader scale as well, I think. Because who will climate change affect first, right? It will be Mm. the poorest people in the world. It'll be people Mm. who are most marginalized within their own communities and their Mm -hmm. societies. So that's why fighting against climate change is actually just fighting I think on every front yeah do you think as individuals we're being told to focus on the wrong things like you know we're told to recycle and stop using plastic straws when actually the biggest polluters are big energy companies and Mm. global corporations and if you do think that is the case why kind of a big debate isn't it I think people often set it up as like personal accountability versus systemic change where do you focus your energy Do I turn the lights off or do I go and bang on the door of Downing Street? But I think for me, it's both because they sort of feed off each other. So the actions that need to be taken are on a scale that I don't control. That's up to big business and governments and policymakers. But I can have a say in that and I can add my voice to that pressure. And that's ultimately kind of where... Naomi Klein's book is going, isn't it? It's sort of like, here's many hundreds of pages of bad news, but ultimately, here's a glimmer of hope, and it's that you can get together with other like-minded people, and the way this is going to change is by having a collective voice. And I think, actually, since this book's been written, we have seen that, you know, Greta Thunberg and kind of the Fridays for Futures movement and uh, Extinction Rebellion and everything, like, people getting out on the streets over this issue. But I guess, like, you know, with what we've spoken about in terms of the deadlines that we have looming, you know, ahead of us, Mm. it does just sometimes feel like, and maybe this isn't a question around, you know, whether you recycle or whether you go and march, because I do just feel like if you are, you know, marching the streets for and protesting against the government's inactions towards climate change, Mm. you obviously probably won't be, um, you know, in your day-to-day needlessly using, you know, single-use plastics and things like Mm. that. But it is just interesting because I do feel Mm. like sometimes, though, people are like, I'll buy all of these things and they're recyclable, but they don't feel, Mm. not that they should feel guilty, but they feel like they've done their bit and therefore they don't need to like further Mm. engage. And I think maybe that's where some of my fear lies, that if we have so much messaging around recycling, when we also know that so much Mm. of the recycling actually just ends up in the South China Sea unrecycled. And Mm. I wonder if... Mm. It can be a distraction and whether, you know, at school, I do remember being taught refuse, reuse, recycle. And thing is, recycle is like the last thing you should do. You know, you should try to firstly refuse, then reuse, then recycle. But it feels like recycling has Mm. become this thing that we go to to almost Mm. alleviate guilt. I agree. And I think if we're talking sort of real day to day stuff, it's about responsibility as well, isn't it? Like that kind of circular responsibility. So if you're a supermarket and you sell a product 
and the packaging for that product isn't recyclable and then so that kind of gets chucked away and then it, it becomes somebody else's problem and then it has to be kind of you know put in landfill on somewhere on the other side of the world after it's traveled there on a giant ship or whatever it's like it's your responsibility isn't it like to deal with that like it's this kind of circular thing it's like if you're selling that product you've got to take ownership over the life cycle of that product i always think but i think really you're right like we're talking as two people that are probably more engaged with this issue than most so i think it's it's up to people that have an interest in this area to be putting as much pressure as they can on businesses you know whoever you shop with you know whoever you bank with whoever if you've got a pension whoever you have your pension with to say to them like I'm going to move somewhere else. I'm going to speak with my actions, with my money. That's a really powerful thing. We are seeing a bit of like progress in, in that area. And that's sizable because that's about making those big banks, instead of taking your money and investing them in fossil fuels, they're going to take them and invest them in renewable initiatives. And it will take enough of us to persuade them to do it that it will just carry everybody else along with them eventually, I think. A lot of this is hope, isn't it? Yeah, I think essentially pressure on every level mm. is yeah so crucial. And you're right, like the economic systems that we live under are not going to change overnight. So we should mm. at least try what we can with the influence that we have. And a lot of the time there is money. And I think a lot of the times what's missing from the climate change conversation is solutions. You know, we're constantly Mm. told this is happening, this is happening, this is really bad. And I actually Mm. felt that way reading Naomi Klein's book. I felt like she was excellent at explaining exactly what the issues are. And that is so Mm. important. But I felt like she didn't actually give, well, she didn't spend as much time on the answers. And Mm. when you're given an answer instead of a problem, it's so much easier to digest it I think and you know and even just now having this conversation us talking Mm. about all these different solutions that makes me feel Mm. so much more hopeful than talking about all the terrible things going on in the world. A hundred percent one of the podcasts I work on sounds like a plan we deliberately set out to make the tone of the conversation and the substance of the conversations that we have on it about solutions because you can get really really bogged down in just how hard this all is like you say it's tough going with a book like Naomi Klein, as, as realistic and as grounding as it is and, and informative. And I think we need all those things. Yeah, you can come off the back of it feeling drained. Are we, are we just going to give up? Like, this is so hard. I think the conversation does need to move to be more solutions-based. But it's, it's a balance, isn't it? It's like solutions whilst understanding just the complexity and the difficulty of the situation. Mm-hmm. So please tell us about your initiative, you know, Sounds Like a Plan podcast. Mm. And at what point did you say to yourself, right, I have to do a podcast? Probably about two years ago. I also host a podcast called Midnight Chats, which is a music interview podcast, much more general. And I just kept finding that conversations would drift in the direction of climate change. Probably a reflection of my interest in, in that area as much as anything else. But I found that musicians wanted to talk about it increasingly. And then off the back of that, I thought that there isn't really a space for this, like these type of conversations. So in April, I launched Sounds Like a Plan, hosted by myself and Faye Milton from the band Savages. And she's also the co-founder of Music Declares Emergency, which is a, a movement, a body of people within the music community who want to take action on climate. And we speak to people from across the music world on the podcast about the action they're taking on the climate crisis. So from artists to record labels, managers, 
activists, conservationists, anybody working in music in whatever corner of the music world they're working, what their passion for climate action, what they're doing proactively on sustainability and all those kind of things. And so, yeah, it's been amazing. Like I've learned loads from doing it. We've spoken to people like a whole diverse set of jobs and 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 everything just and and so many kind of light bulb moments being like brilliant like creativity really does help like we're gonna have to you know we talked about solutions a minute ago like creative solutions like they, they happen on enormous scales they happen on really small scales and everywhere in between so to hear some of those what's going on in the music world in terms of like what they're doing their bit in terms of trying to to push this forward is has been amazing mm-hmm and what changes do you hope to make with the podcast? Well, first, I think was just to give people some solutions and some hope and some kind of education on it. We've had like listeners writing to us saying that, you know, they've taken action off the back of listening to it, which has just been amazing. Wasn't necessarily something we had in mind before we started it, but it's been like a really, really great byproduct. And also just being a bit more optimistic. Like, What three tips do you have for those of us who try to inform ourselves about climate change but really want to mm. sort of take it to the next level there's loads you could do a few things that i thought of i'm a big advocate and sort of encourager if that's a word of people getting out into the real world to do stuff i think that sort of balances like your mental thoughts on these things as well as your sort of like physical well-being and things like that and there's an organization called the conservation volunteers it's in the uk based in a lot of cities and other places, which is about bringing together volunteers to create green spaces around cities and towns and things like that. And you meet other people and maybe they're engaged in climate action, maybe they're not. But like it's a real kind of like levelling experience of learning more about the fundamentals of of nature and, and how that has a positive effect on your own well-being and communities and things like that. So definitely like look into things you can do that means that that get you outside to to get involved that might be doing some gardening but that might also be joining a somebody like the conservation volunteers i would encourage people to go on a march i'm sure there's going to be a lot of physical action in the remainder of 2021 i think there's going to be another school strike on the 24th of september probably happening all across the uk and beyond so like go down see who's there listen to what people are saying like i think that is really good for kind of feeding your knowledge on this subject and just fill like your social feeds with a bit more encouragement and seeing people other people doing things it's easy to see that sort of doom saying stuff but like follow fridays for future follow the youth strike for climate and those places because i think it will uplift you a little bit and maybe make you feel more part of the movement and then just make sure that you're talking to your friends and family about it that's where a lot of activism starts you know way in the places where you feel a little bit more comfortable to sort of explore your views on a subject and then you know that goes to a slightly wider circle of people and eventually you know you'll feel more comfortable talking about it more openly so um yeah those are those would be the things i'd encourage people to do Mm -hmm. and are there any other books that you'd recommend on climate change to our readers? Two, actually, that had a big impact on me. One is sort of on a similar tip. It's called The Uninhabitable Earth, and it's by a journalist called David Wallace-Wells. I would say it's a little bit more digestible than, than Naomi Klein's book. It really focuses on the sort of degradation of the natural environment rather than kind of like our economic systems and the problems with that. But what I would say is so everybody has like a different angle or a different approach 
to the climate crisis like for one person you know the threat of displaced people or something is the thing that really triggers you to be like oh, i need to do more in this or but for another person it might be like seeing a beautiful natural environment getting ruined or something like that you know the barrier reef or something like that this is for those type of people i think so if you have been engaged in the past with the documentaries of david attenborough or greta Thunberg, i think that this is the kind of book that might resonate with you and then just to sort of um bring things up and something that I think is a bit more hopeful there's a book called The Future We Choose by Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak and that basically is split into two it's kind of looking at the future it's presenting two versions of the future one version is if we don't get our head around what we need to do like what is the future going to look like and the second half is like if we do get our head around what we need to do this is what our future looks like and off the back of that that feels almost utopian and you think I felt that's the world I want to live in and for me that was an important part of like encouraging me to to go out there and learn more about this so if Naomi Klein's book is for your head then I think that like the future we choose is the type of book that really gets to your heart Mm. on this matter so definitely recommend that wow thank you so so much this has been such a good conversation I really feel a little bit more positive actually just off the back of this conversation and thank you for also giving those tips and what people can do and actual you know yeah it's been brilliant thank you so much yeah you're absolutely welcome and thanks so much for inviting me to to talk about it i want to say thank you to greg for coming on today's show it was such a pleasure to discuss his unique approach to this huge issue and thank you for listening to broccoli book club in next month's book club we'll be discussing clearing the plains by james dashik So get reading now and send in your thoughts via social media. Don't forget to share the podcast and join the conversation using the hashtag Broccoli Book Club. And if you liked what you heard, why not subscribe and leave a review on your favourite podcast app? I've been your host, Diora, and you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at The Diora. Broccoli Book Club is produced by Jarja Mohammed, assistant produced by Rory Boyle, executive produced by Renee Richardson, and mixed by Rob Fincham.